So if you've been around the church for the last seven, eight weeks, made that up, might be five, might be ten, I don't know, but uh, we've been going through uh, the story of Joseph, um, a life in technical, Joseph the dreamer, technical dream coat, and um, I'm going to have to give you a quick backstory because otherwise it might make no sense. But as many of you will know, Joseph was the favourite, favoured son of Jacob. A fact that he rubbed in his brother's faces a lot. He had dreams suggesting that one day his older brothers would all bow down to him, which I imagine would be reasonably irritating. And in an opportune moment, deciding they wouldn't kill him, because that would be a bit mean, we'll just sell him as a slave. So I guess you've got to give them something for that. His father thought he was dead, and from their point of view, their younger brother is done. And they don't have to put up with him anymore. And it is a familiar story. But that's far from the end. What we found is that Joseph is taken to Egypt. He goes into the service of Potiphar, who is the um, captain of the palace guard. And it says that he prospered. It says that God was with him and he gave him success. And he became head of Potiphar's household. You know, things were starting to look up for Joseph. But then, just when it starts going a bit better, Potiphar's wife tries to sleep with him. He refuses. She then decides to falsely accuse him of trying on with her. Classic. And um, that got him thrown in prison. So he got chucked in prison for doing the right thing. So much for it actually all starting to look up a bit. But in prison, it says again he was granted favour in the eyes of the prison warden and he was put in charge of everything that was done there and while he was there some of you are very familiar the the baker arrived in prison the king's cupbearer arrived in prison and both had dreams and Joseph was a dreamer and God gave him the the spirit wisdom to interpret these dreams and he interpreted these dreams and exactly what Joseph said come to pass happened the baker was executed and the cupbearer returned to the king's service. And as the cupbearer was leaving, Joseph said to, to him, can you just remember me? I'm here, I haven't done anything wrong, I'm here. Just, just remember me. I'm not here. I shouldn't be here. But he wasn't. And we think another two or three years passed with Joseph just sitting in prison. And this is where we're going to just pick up the texts. So we're just going to start from Genesis 14, 41. And it says this, And then Pharaoh sent and called Joseph, and they quickly brought him out of the pit. And when he had shaved himself and changed his clothes, he came before Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, I've had a dream, and there is no one who can interpret it. I've heard it said that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. And Joseph answered Pharaoh, It is not me. God will give Pharaoh a favourable answer. And then what happens, it's really wordy. Pharaoh explains his two dreams, which effectively, um, these seven fat cows come out of the Nile, and then seven scrawny cows come up out of the Nile, and the seven scrawny cows eat the seven fat cows, and then he has another dream about ears of corn and really full healthy ears of corn, get eaten by withered ears of corn. 
and Joseph um, interprets them and he explains that actually these are signifying there is going to be seven good years of, of crops and harvests and rains and then following that there's going to be seven years of famine and that actually this is a warning to, the, to Pharaoh that he needs to prepare for the famine that's coming. And we'll pick it up again in verse 33. And then David, uh, Joseph says, Now therefore let Pharaoh select a discerning and wise man and set him over the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh proceed to appoint overseers over the land and take one-fifth of the produce of the land of Egypt during those seven plentiful years. And let them gather all the food of these good years that are coming and store up grain under the authority of Pharaoh for food in the cities and let him keep it. The food shall be reserved for the land against the seven years of famine that are to occur in the land of Egypt so that the land may not perish through the famine. These proposals pleased Pharaoh and all his servants. And Pharaoh said to his servants, Can we find a man like this in whom is the Spirit of God? Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Since God has shown you all this, there is none so discerning and wise as you are. You shall be over my house and all my people shall order themselves as you command. Only as regard to the throne will I be greater than you. Let me just pray. Just quick. Father, we just want to thank you for your word. Thank you that you have revealed wisdom to us. That we have words on a page that we can meditate on and ask for your insight on. That can change our hearts, can change our lives. Lord, it can, can build your kingdom in this city. God, and we just pray. As we just explore some of the wisdom here, Father, that you would, by your spirit, speak to us, God. More than anything, we know we need to hear from you, Jesus. So by your spirit, God, just speak to us, we ask. Amen. So after everything that's gone wrong for Joseph, he suddenly goes from prison to power in a matter of hours. And it's that aspect of power which we're just going to spend a few minutes focusing on this evening. And now when we talk about power, there's all kind of, it's got all kind of definitions. But in essence, it's the capacity to get what you want. Now there's an aspect of like personal freedom to it, but it's basically but it's the responsibility and the power and influence that we wield over others. Now for the most part, when we talk about power, it comes with in quite negative connotations. You know, we think of the obvious Abuses throughout history, um, oppressive regimes and genocide, um, down to controlling and unhealthy relationships and marriages, which, although it seems very subtle, is equally as destructive. You know, great wrong has been done in the abuse of power. And broadly speaking, I think we know this in our hearts, we are suspicious of those who have power over us. You know, we do resent authority. We may not express it explicitly, but... There is a, there's an un- discomfort with authority. We think of who likes paying the council tax. We've all got an opinion about how undeserving our governments are. And yet, you know, our undeserving line managers. You know, how many of us really do not like our line managers? I don't actually have one, so I can say that. But um, I have had some what I've considered undeserving line managers. Now, that's partly, we think, power is down to the damage it can do. But, you know, the biggest part of it is none of us like being told what to do. We hate being told what to do or being dictated to. Unless, of course, we're the ones doing it. 
you know what I mean? There's a real inconsistency. We, like, we don't like power as long as, long as we're, but we're okay with it if it's us. If we're in charge, we're cool with it. So I think power's had a bit of a bad rep, and reasonably so, reasonably so, but there's a huge positive potential in power. You know, if we cast our eye around the globe, we have some wonderfully stable countries. We have stable societies. We have social care. We have health, we have health systems. I know we're going to moan about it. Everyone has an opinion on politics, but we, we have it pretty great. We have a, a health service which will treat pretty much anybody. We have access to free education. We have law and order. We have a degree of an impartial judiciary. You know, if you go to sub-Saharan Africa, they would, take, they would bite our arm off for what we have in this country. So power wielded properly is a wonderful, wonderful thing. And Joseph finds himself thrust into this position of power. Prime Minister to Egypt, only second to Pharaoh. And there are three things I just want to pull out this evening. In Joseph's story, which I think gives us wisdom and insight into uh, God's wisdom around power. And first of all, we see that God ultimately has the power of our lives. We see this clearly in Joseph's story. And like we've said, broadly speaking, we have never had so much freedom or control or autonomy in all of human history as we do now. Sure, there's inequality that we need to do our best to eradicate. But you could make a case that you, we, you know, access to education, access to, to getting beyond some of this stuff, we've got it really, really good. The idea of make something for yourself. We like that idea, the idea that every effort results in equal progress, that the world rewards you for the effort you put in. I like that idea. And there is some common sense to it. My heart likes the idea of fairness. I think we all know that sense of justice and fairness. But sometimes it just isn't from our perspective. And it is infuriating. And Joseph must have felt like that. Sure, he was a bit of a brat. Lording his dreams over his brothers. But he surely didn't do enough to deserve being sold as a slave. And then when he did the right thing in Potiphar's house, being thrown in prison completely unjustly. He must have thought, seriously? What have I done to deserve this? And the uncomfortable truth is, we have far less control over our lives than we would ever like to admit. On the face of it, Joseph got a raw deal. He repeatedly did the right thing, and it got worse. But it doesn't make sense until we can fully appreciate what God was doing. And actually, God was doing his best work in what we would consider wasn't fair. And you see, this is the thing. God doesn't deal in fair. He deals in purpose. And that, like I say, is infuriating to our sense of justice. And so the things going on in our lives, the things that we don't understand, we can trust that God is holding them. And he is working out his plans mysteriously, frustratingly, slowly. But we can trust that he's doing it. It's interesting, those phrases. It says that God gave Joseph favour. He gave him success. He says those repeatedly. And they're interesting phrases because it says that God was far more involved in Joseph's success than Joseph just being competent. 
Do you take credit for your own competencies? Your own intellect? Your abilities? Because you were born with them. You didn't earn them. You were given them. You were given them mysteriously by a God who made you in his mysterious and wonderful way. God gave you your brain as a gift to the world. And yet how many of us would claim them for ourselves and use them for self-promotion or self-gain? But if God repeatedly gave Joseph favour and success and was with him and he prospered, how come he ended up in slavery in prison? You know, that just makes sense. I'm going to bless you and throw you in prison. You know, I'm going to give you success and then have you falsely accused. And the big thing, we move on to the next point, is that God knew it was necessary. God in his wisdom knew it was necessary. And the second thing about power we see in Joseph's story is that power is prepared for. Now Joseph won't have known it at the time, but 15 years of misery and slavery was exactly what God knew it would take for him to be ready. Joseph's dreams of greatness as a young man, but his heart wasn't ready. God couldn't trust him, because Joseph didn't know himself, and he believed his own hype. He was proud. He believed he was special. And in God's eyes, that's no good. He wasn't ready to wield the power that he was going to have to carry. A.W. Tozer said this, he said, It is doubtful whether God can bless a man greatly unless he has hurt him deeply. It is doubtful whether God can bless a man greatly unless he's hurt him deeply. And I think the same could be saying, said for use. For God to use us, I can't really think of a character in scripture that didn't get hurt pretty badly. Because God had to knock some lumps out of Joseph. That willfulness, that sense of entitlement is horribly stubborn. And for us as well, it takes some serious of God's work to beat it out of us. You know, God needed Joseph to get to the end of himself so that he could learn to trust him. His ambition, his sense of entitlement, it had to die. Joseph had to learn to surrender. And that could only happen when his weakness and his, and his uh, vulnerability was, explay, ex- kind of was exposed and plain before him. And I'm sure it took many, many years. And in that time, those 15 years, Joseph's ego must have slowly shattered. Having every aspiration of a notion of control just taken away. Illusions of his own grandeur just evaporated as he sat in a dark cell. But here's the thing. Joseph's waiting was God's working. Joseph's waiting was God's working. There was, that was, the, the waiting was the thing. He wasn't waiting for the next thing. He was waiting for the thing. The time and the waiting was the thing. And I'm sure it was incredibly wearing. But time was the test. And the question is, how would he respond? And from what we can see, Joseph responded brilliantly. We never pick up anything of a man filled with resentment or bitterness. 
I'm sure he had his moments of self-pity, but they didn't win out. They don't manifest themselves in his, in his attitudes to his brothers later on or his, any of his attitudes. And I think he, it seems he just got on with it. Whatever situation he found himself, he just got on with it. You know, God, I don't understand what you're doing, but I'm still going to declare you worthy and I'm going to learn to wait. Now, that's, to me, that's ridiculous. I mean, that takes some guts. And I imagine... It's a bit of an annoying point, but the way that God works, it tends to take longer than we think. Like at Potiphar's house, I imagine Joseph was like, okay, I've gone from a slave to a, a, I've got some dignity and responsibility. I'm kind of running the house. I've got some trust and some autonomy. I've probably got some slightly better food than a complete hand servant. And then what happens? God's like, no, not done yet. Back into prison. You know, just when it was looking up, he wasn't ready yet. And a few years ago, um, I did, I did um, like a few months of counselling to discover my inner child, or to be nice to them. It was great. Everyone should do counselling. Terrifying and wonderful all at once. But um, so I met with my counsellor and she was like, well, we'll do half a dozen and we'll just see how we get on. I was like, cool. So the first few were horrific because you have to reflect and think more than you'd ever like to. And someone asks you lots of questions and you feel just a bit weird. And then you start enjoying it because it's actually quite liberating and after five she was like okay so how how do you think we're doing I was like yeah I think I'm nailing this counselling thing yeah I think six will be fine she's like we'll do twelve <laughs> that literally was it was it was almost funny but no one was there to laugh at it I was just like okay fine we'll do twelve but the point is God is far more thorough than we would like him to be and his work in our hearts tends to take a lot longer than we'd like. But we know that he knows better than us in our, on our better days. The truth is, in prison, Joseph was more free than he'd ever been. He wasn't free physically, but his ambition and his pride, his entitlement, his expectations, he was more free there than he'd ever been on the outside. You see, godly greatness is mostly predominantly revealed in our attitudes, not in our positions. Does that make sense? Like, that's what godly greatness is. That's what God admires. That's what he counts as valuable. It's our attitudes and our humility, not in the badge that we wear. And it's important, I think, because... The positions we hold and the responsibilities we have, particularly the visible ones that we know other people are seeing involving authority, power comes with serious temptation. Money, sex and power have this notion of the unholy trinity of evil things repeatedly. And I don't think it's an accident. I've heard plenty of sermons on sex, not many on money, but I haven't heard a single one explicitly on power. Maybe you have. But I was like, because power is just like, you know, it's almost like, a, oh, we like people who are a bit confident, a bit controlling, control freak, haha, banter, you know. But actually power is a significant problem for the human heart. And it often seems to go unaddressed. And you see, in our best moments, I think at least, we love, what we love to see is great power in the pursuit of great things. 
That's what our hearts long for. As Christians, we long to see power being used gloriously for the expansion of God's kingdom and the flourishment of people. That's what, in our, that is what our spiritual imaginations delight in. But it's so easily corrupted. Because where there's power, there is always a temptation and it, that it's used to exalt the one who has it. It's too much of a temptation. That's why it gets lumped with money and sex. Because it's a real temptation. It's not, it's not, a bit, it's not like hashtag banter, confident person, control freak. It's like a, this is a problem. Because we love to be admired and praised. And our hearts are so aggressively bent with what power we have towards getting that applause. Because our hearts do have a worship problem. It's a big problem. In Jeremiah, you know, he writes that the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? And then David, at the end of Psalm 139, search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. That's David saying, God, I am blind. I am blind to myself. Help me. That's like a desperate plea for revelation of of themselves. They know what their hearts are capable of. And God knew, I think, that to be prime minister without the prison would have destroyed Joseph. And the problem with power is that we believe our own hype. We marvel at our competencies, our accomplishments, our achievements, and we're just acting out of pride. And so this is debated whether whether to to do this bit. So I'm apologising in advance. But some of you believe your own hype. Some of you look down on people. I'm just talking to myself as much as anyone else. Us. Some of us are judgmental. And it is a big deal. Because it says that God opposes the proud. It's not that he's like, oh guys, can you try not to? He opposes the proud. He will resist you. If you are proud, he will resist you. Because it's incompatible with his heart. It's incompatible with the values of the kingdom. And it will disqualify you from being fully used in the purposes of God. Of course he wants us to be confident in who he's made us. But ego is deeply ugly. I don't think, I know we don't say it, it's not very popular to say it, but ego is really ugly. And God says it's no good. It's not okay. Now thankfully the Holy Spirit, Jesus died to redeem our ego. To renew, restore that sense of self from being ugly, selfish, focused to being full of joy and full of generosity. That we could have freedom in knowing who we are. And you see... Sitting there in the dark, I think Joseph must have believed and learned to not believe his own hype. He'd had many dark nights to think about it. 
and the time and the Spirit of God changed him. And it prepared him for the temptation that he'd have to face when the power was later given to him. And this is, I do think this is quite important, but we, we're meant to be admiring the character of God that God forged in Joseph, not the position he was given. Does that make sense? The miracle of this passage is not that Joseph got to be PM. It's what God did in him to enable him to be it. Does that make sense? Because we, of course, we are deeply attracted to that position. How many of our imaginations are going, oh, I'd love to be prime minister. You know, oh, lucky him. You know, that, that's kind of human nature. That's where you want to go. But actually, the miracle in this is what God did in, jo- in, in, in Joseph. And where do we see those temptations within ourselves? We all have unredeemed bits of us. Of course we do. Where do we crave that visibility and that recognition? Where do we cling and desire that significance and status? Because the truth is God wants much more for us than to be satisfied going after those things. And finally... What we see is power is given for a purpose. And Joseph studied it really, really well. It says that God gave Joseph power because he knew he could trust him. It says Joseph, he gathered food for the seven years. He implemented his plan. Joseph had a good plan. And he implemented his plan in preparation. But actually, Joseph's tactic as prime minister was no different from his tactic that he'd done ever since he was sold as a slave. Joseph's tactic was always to create an environment around him where people flourished. And he did it repeatedly. Irrespective of the context he was in, Joseph used power and inf- the power and influence he had to create spaces for others to thrive. Focused not on his own glory, but in the good he could do. Now I'm sure, like it says, he, he, materially he gained massively from being prime minister. He had riches beyond his imagination. And I'm sure he enjoyed those benefits. It's not wrong for him to enjoy those benefits. But they never had the affections of his heart. They never had his deepest desires. He never forgot where he had come from. He didn't wait for the big gig or for recognition. He just got on with it wherever he found himself on. He didn't think, when I'm in that position, then I'll man up and I'll look after people. He got on with it where he was faithful and he let God worry about his career opportunities. Joseph was incredibly faithful in the small, which qualified him for the big. God wasn't more impressed with his use of power as a slave than he was as prime minister. What impressed him was his attitude and his state of heart. And you see, God gives us power to bring his kingdom to people and the structures around us. And so in your spheres of family, in work, in friendships, where are you using your power? Where are you creating spaces to people to flourish around you? How are you stewarding the influence God's given you? Because we all have massive influence. All of us have massive influence. 
And it's not to be compared. You know, Theodore Roosevelt said that comparison was the thief of joy. So whether we're CEO of a multinational, I've got thousands of employees, or we're a mum who is nurturing, doing that same for our kids, it's no different. In God's eyes, it's equally significant. And Joseph did it. I just found it phenomenal looking at it. I was like, in prison, Joseph uses power to create an environment where people flourished. In Potiphar's house, he used his power to create an environment where people flourished. As prime minister, he used his power to create an environment where people flourished. That consistency, that faithfulness with the seemingly insignificant to God was deeply significant. And the repeated theme we think, if we think of Jesus' ministry, he spoke about the kingdom of God. And it was an upside down kingdom of God. We could almost think if we summarized, if we summarized uh, Jesus' message, it was pretty much a race to the bottom. It was the co- only competition was that how you could outserve one another. And that's a radically different message to what we see around us. He who wants to be great must become the least. So what have we seen this evening? We've seen that God works mysteriously at his pace, which is often slower than ours, and mostly all in order to redeem our attitudes and appetites. Joseph learned the most important things in the darkest places. He embraced brokenness and weakness that qualified him to steward power properly in order that he could face the aggressive temptations that would come with it. And you see, in Joseph, we see a character who, whether he had little or much, humanly speaking, stewarded his power and influence faithfully, creating spaces for people to flourish. And I always say each of us has power. Each of us has influence in our jobs, in our friendships, in our families. what, 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 What is he asking us to do? What opportunity can we take in our city to see its people flourish? And Joseph found freedom in prison. I know we touched on that already. But that's what God wants for us too. Because that, that part of our hearts which is unredeemed, which is ugly, which craves attention and craves applause and craves ambition and significance, God's got more for us than that. He's got more freedom for us than that. There's far more joy and far more peace. And I did think, I was thinking this morning, like some of us may have had dreams when we were younger or now. And actually we feel like we've been sitting as a slave for 15, 20, 25 years. And we've mistaken nothing for nothing. Does that make sense? And actually what we've seen from Joseph's story is that that time was God's working. And actually an element of it might be a call to, to kind of pick up, to park the resentment and the bitterness and the disappointment of, God, I thought you said this and it's been nothing, and the despondency, and actually to have some of those spiritual dreams realightened. 
So the band can come up and I'm just going to pray. Um, Heavenly Father, Lord, we delight to know you more so much. Father, we acknowledge our need of you. We acknowledge our weakness. We acknowledge your power and your strength, God. And Father, we just want to bring every circumstance we have, the things we don't understand, the frustrations, the despondencies, God, and we, we ask for faith. We ask for hope, God, that by your spirit, you would remind us that you are present, that you care, that you're not indifferent, that you are working, God. Thank you that you're not a passive God. And Father, where there are those things within us that we can't let go of, those appetites, those desires for power, significance, Lord, where those insecurities that we let drive us, God, that we feel a slave to, Father, we just pray by your spirit that these would be broken. God, we pray that you'd give us a better vision, a bigger vision of the power of your spirit, a bigger vision of how you see us, a bigger vision of our significance, God. I pray that you would do away in our hearts the power of comparison. The power where we judge ourselves. God, Lord, Lord, we open ourselves up and ask that we would receive your truth and your wisdom, God, because our hearts are blind, Lord. We, we acknowledge like David and Jeremiah that our hearts are needing of your revelation. Lord, that what we think we know, we don't know. And so, Father, I pray that we'd have an openness to hear from you.